0: Lord God, thank you that you are a good Father. Thank you that you make a way. Thank you that you call us to be your children and that you set us free to live as such. Speak to us this morning through your word and lead us each day to walk as your children, to know that truth in our heads and in our hearts. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So we've been walking with the children of Israel through the journey of Exodus, and we've, uh, we've walked through the first 13 chapters of this book in the Bible, and last week we saw them finally actually released from slavery. Um, it's been a long journey already, because you start out 80 years before this begins to happen. And then we watched Pharaoh have to deal with sign after sign after sign and refusing to let the people go. And then finally, with the death of the firstborn and the Passover, he says, go, get out of here. Um, It's been a journey of very slowly increasing involvement for the people of Israel. So at the beginning, they can do nothing. They, They can't fight Pharaoh. They can't fight the Egyptians. They have no way to deliver themselves. They get to the point where they cannot even receive a word of hope. And we talked about that, how Moses came to them to say, God is really going to let you go, and because of their despair and their cruel oppression, they, they just can't hear it anymore, and God rescues them anyway. And then we talked about the Passover and how this was the first sign where Israel had to do something. Up until then, it, it had just been done. But as they get to the Passover, they have to take a lamb, and they have to sacrifice it, and they have to paint its blood on their door and they have to eat and they have to get ready because they're going to leave quickly in the morning. And um, now they're leaving as we head into chapter 14. And that same transition is going to keep going. Because if you remember, as we've been talking about this all along, Israel is being free from slave, freed from slavery to Egypt in order to be servants of and worshipers, and children of God. There's a journey from leaving the land of Egypt, and there's a journey to, to the promised land, and to becoming the people of God. And one of the things that's really neat as we read this story is the way that that transition happens gradually. God doesn't expect them to do it quickly and get it all figured out at once. He doesn't start out by handing them a sword and saying, Here, fight Pharaoh. Right, It's one step at a time. And we're going to walk with them through a number of these steps today. And one of the things that we begin to see happening is we begin to see the people changing. So in chapter 13, Pharaoh finally lets them go. And we read this in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war... They might change their minds and return to Egypt. In other words, God looks at the people as they're finally being set free, and he says, you're not ready to fight yet. This is God making this assessment, so it's probably pretty accurate. You're not ready to fight yet. If we go by the easy road, the normal, expected, short road to where we're headed, you're going to get into battle with the Philistines, and you're going to turn around. So he leads them by the wilderness. But if you fast-forward four chapters to chapter 17 of Exodus, the Amalekites attack as they enter into the wilderness around Mount Sinai. And God tells Moses to get an army together and fight. And they win. And this is not like years later. This is weeks. Weeks after God's assessment that they are not ready to get into a fight. They get into a fight and they're ready. And the question that it kind of asks is, what changed? Like what happened in those weeks between leaving Egypt and facing the Amalekites in the wilderness? And you might expect, if you're thinking about this from a battle perspective, um, that in between there they'd had war training. And they'd been outfitted. They'd gotten better weapons and armor and chariots and horses and catapults and bows and arrows and all of these kind of things. And they'd gotten a brand new general, someone who knew how to fight, and, and none of that is what happened. <laughs> none, none of those things changed. They didn't spend those weeks in the wilderness training for battle, not in the ways that we would expect. Instead, they spent those weeks in the wilderness with God with the great wilderness guide. And it was being in his presence that began to transform the nation of Israel from a group of people who would have fled back to slavery rather than face war into a group of people who can face war and win. And so that's the journey we get to walk. And I gotta tell you, if you're gonna go on a wilderness journey, God is a pretty good wilderness guide to have with you. So just to give you a preview here, they run into a sea they can't cross, so God parts it. They run into waters they can't drink, so God purifies them. They run out of supplies, so God causes bread to appear on the ground every morning and quail to fly in every night so they can eat. Um, The water they've purified they had to leave behind, and now there is no water, so God brings out water from a rock. Like, if you're going to tramp through the wilderness, I want a guide like that. I wouldn't have to carry anything. It would be awesome. (laughs) And you can begin to see just from that brief preview why spending a few weeks with someone like that might change you. And that's the journey we get to walk this morning as we look at Exodus chapter 14 to 18. And we start in Exodus 14, and so I'm just going to have us read the beginning of this story. We're going to read verses 1 to 14 together. So if you have your your Bibles or a phone, you like to have it in front of you, pull it out. We're in Exodus 14. It will be on the screen, and we're going to read this together. And I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. And we stand together every Sunday as we do this to honor the Word of God, um, to participate in this. We're all in this together. It's the best thing you're going to hear from me. Um, So let us hear the Word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Piherioth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite baal zephon Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and we've lost their services. It's a nice way to talk about your slaves, hey, we've lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite baal As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord, the deliverance that the Lord will bring to you today." The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. That's a great last line, isn't it? You will see the deliverance the Lord has for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And what follows is a story many of us will know. It's a story that's been dramatized in film and art and cartoons many, many times over as God parts the sea and makes a way where there seems to be no way. Humanly speaking, they're standing on the edge of a body of water they cannot get across, especially not with Egyptian chariots bearing down on them from behind. But God sends a wind and and a miracle and parts the waters and they cross on dry land. And he does fight for them. They've, been, they've had this pillar of fire and smoke with them leading them the way, and it moves from in front of them to behind them to block the Egyptians from being able to get to them until they've crossed the sea. And then, and this is the presence of God in the pillars of fire and smoke, he gets out of the way so the Egyptians can chase them. And the Egyptians charge into the parted sea, and, and God strikes their chariots, And he causes the wheels to to jam up and collapse and fall apart. And the Egyptian army realizes what's going on. We read that they, they turn to Pharaoh and they say, we need to leave. The Lord is fighting for them. Like the Egyptians know what's going on, but it's too late. They're stuck in between the walls of water. And when the Israelites exit the other side, the water comes crashing down and drowns the Egyptian army. This is just the first lesson that Israel learns all on their journey in the wilderness. The lesson of trust. The lesson that when God takes them somewhere, he will continue to take care of them. Now that isn't going to mean at every step of the way they have nothing to do. Here, facing the Egyptians, God says, you only need to be still. I will fight for you. But when they face the Amalekites, that's not what he says. He says, Set Joshua in charge of the men, have him gather up those who are capable of fighting, and go to war. Right. So it's not about God always giving the same command every time. It's about God taking care of you in the midst of the commands that he has given. He's the one who led them by the wilderness way instead of up the road past the Philistines. And he's the one who continues to make a way across the sea. So trust him. Moses and Miriam having seen God part the sea and defeat the Egyptians lead the people in worship. And this is exactly what they are heading out to do. And we talked about this briefly in the first week on Exodus that when Pharaoh or Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, "We need to go, it's so that we could worship the Lord." They haven't been able to worship rightly while they were in slavery. And we begin to see that promise fulfilled here. Moses and Miriam called prophet and prophetess lead in a song um, that's quite powerful, but I'm not going to spend any time on it this morning because we've got a lot of chapters to go through. And it's a reflection of what God has done in Exodus chapter 14. So the journey continues, and they come to a place called Marah, an oasis in the wilderness. It's needed. They've been heading there on purpose. They can't carry enough supplies with them to last for very long. And they're running out of water. And they come to Marah, and they can't drink it because the water is bitter. Something's gone wrong. It's poisonous. It's unclean and unhealthy. And so they, again, they see the Egyptians coming. They panic. They yell to God, um, like, did you bring us out here to die? And God saves them. They get to the water that they can't drink. And they grumble against Moses, what are we going to do? Like, there's no water here. We're all in big trouble. And Moses prays, and the Lord, it says, the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And so God purifies the bitter waters. And he takes this opportunity to teach them a second lesson. Trust, again, And every lesson that they walk through in the wilderness encourages the people of Israel and shows the people of Israel that they can trust the Lord God. But this time, after he's made the waters sweet, he gives them this message. He says, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, then I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. In other words, they're beginning to learn the lesson of obedience. Now, it's gradual. They didn't have to do much. Moses had to take a piece of wood and throw it in the water. I think about being a leader in that position, and everyone's standing around waiting for you to do something to fix this situation, and God says, here, throw this stick in there. And you're kind of like okay, I hope no one's looking because what if this doesn't work, (laughs) right? And you throw the stick in there trying not to look foolish and God brings out, I don't know that Moses was feeling that way. That's me putting myself into the story. Um, And then the water becomes sweet. And it's this very, very small act of obedience. But God takes that opportunity to speak to the people and say, if you will listen to my words, if you will do what I say, Then you will walk in the presence of the God who heals you. Then things will go well with you. He's going to keep teaching them that lesson. God the wilderness guide makes a way through the sea. He cleanses the water. And then we turn to Exodus 16, and we're going to spend quite a bit more time in Exodus 16. We've moved quickly through the parting of the sea and the purifying of the water. In Exodus chapter 16, the people run out of food. They've been traveling for about a month now, and their provisions are exhausted. And they begin to complain bitterly. Um, And once again, they throw those same words at Moses and at the Lord. If we had only died in Egypt, why did you bring us out here? Um, They remember the pots of meat they could sit around, which I always find to be an interesting picture. But you brought us out into the desert to starve. And so then God speaks to Moses. And this is another story we may have seen before, or you may have heard before. And God says, I'm going to cause manna to be present on the ground for you in the morning. And in the evening, I'm going to bring quails, flocks of quails for you to catch. So you'll have bread in the morning and you'll have meat in the evening. Now, this account is given to us in quite a lot of detail. And the reason for that is because Within this, and this is something that the Israelites live with for their entire journey in the wilderness, from this day onwards until they reach the promised land, every day they will eat manna from heaven and they will eat quail. These lessons that are embedded in this story are ongoing. God only parts the sea once. He only purifies the water at Marah once. But every day he sends manna from heaven and quail in the evening. And I think that's why we're given a really detailed account and why God teaches them so much more in the midst of this. So I want us to think for a few minutes about what's what's going on. So first of all, God comes to Moses, just a real brief overview of the story. God comes to Moses, he says, I'm going to send man in heaven. And what you have to do is you have to send the people out in the morning to gather it, because once the sun is fully out, it's going to disappear like the morning dew. Okay? And everybody will gather the same amount. It's called an omer, and I don't actually know. It's about um, two liters, give or take. We don't, it's a guess, right? We don't know because it's one of these Hebrew measurement words that we're not sure what it equals. Um, everyone's going to gather an omer, one omer for each person in the household, and there'll be enough food for everybody. And they must eat it on the day they've gathered it. You can't save it for later, Okay. And then in the evening, the quail will come and you can catch them and you can eat them for dinner. And Moses, or the Lord tells Moses that on the sixth day, they will gather twice as much because on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, they aren't to gather any. Now Moses goes to the people and he gives them a short version. He says, the Lord is going to, you know, you're grumbling, but God is going to take care of you. He's going to send you bread in the morning and he's going to send you meat in the evening and this is what you are to do. He says, gather it up, don't save it for tomorrow. So he leaves out the instructions about the sixth day. And some of the people gather and they eat, or all the people gather and some of them save some for the next day. And what happens to the stuff they save for the next day is it rots. And then comes the sixth day and they go out to gather and they get twice as much as they did on the 5 days previous and this time they tell the leaders who tell Moses they say we have too much we all saw what happened with the stuff we didn't eat the first time around so what are we supposed to do and then Moses gives them the instruction says ah that's because tomorrow's the sabbath don't gather anything on the sabbath Just take what you've received on the sixth day, prepare it how you want to prepare it, and then on the seventh day, you are to rest. And again, some of them don't listen and head out in the morning to try to gather manna, and there's none there. So that's your short version of the story. But what's going on here? This is a people who have known nothing except slavery. They have lived their whole lives without enough. They've never had enough. They've never known what there will be tomorrow. They've never been able to say, there's enough for today and there's enough for tomorrow and we're going to be okay. Many, many times, they weren't okay. Suffering a life of cruel oppression, many of them would have died younger than they should have. They would have gone hungry often, um, especially near the end when Pharaoh basically doubles their workload. They would have been lucky to be getting even half enough sleep each night, let alone have time to do the things they needed to do in order to live and eat and even approach the condition of flourishing. And so here, God provides food for them. And at a very basic level, God is just once again showing them, you can trust me, I've got this. But God takes the opportunity to teach them so much more. So we read that after Moses tells them about the manna, and interestingly, manna is the Hebrew word for what is it. They go out in the morning, they're like, what's this? Oh, that's what we're, call- we're going to call it. What's this? That's the name. They don't know what it is. We get a description. It's white and flaky like frost, it's, or it's flaky like frost, white like coriander seed, and sweet like honey. That's all we know about it. Um, and apparently they can cook it. They can boil it or bake it or roast it. You can cook it however you want. I don't know what kind of food lets you do that, but that's okay. If it disappears in the sun, I don't know how you boil it, but God's pretty cool. So, so they head out in the morning, and we're told that everybody gathered an omer. But then we're told that those who gathered much gathered an omer, and those who gathered little gathered an omer. The amount, and it makes no sense, right? Like some of them went out there and they worked really hard and they gathered up as much as they could and they brought it home and they had an omer. And others of them went out there and they couldn't work very hard or they didn't work very hard and they had an omer. What's going on? Why? God is disconnecting the provision and the gift that he is giving them from the value of their labor. They have only ever been valued for their labor. That's the only life they've ever had, is a life where they are the workers for Egypt. And if you want to, if you want to make it, right, if you don't want to get whipped or executed or whatever the case may be, you've got to work hard. And if you're not working hard enough, you're in trouble. And here God gives an incredible grace and lesson. So some of them would have been old or young and incapable of gathering as much. Some of them would have been in some way crippled or hurt or sick. And it didn't matter. All of them, independent of their condition and independent of their ability to work hard, received enough, which is an incredible just picture of who God is. And what he's doing is he's beginning to teach them what it means to be his children, to not be slaves to Pharaoh, but to be the free sons and daughters of God. Some of them, some of the people of Israel, respond with a slavery or a scarcity mindset. Each person, we don't think about this very often, each person is given enough for the day. So how do you save some for tomorrow? It means you didn't eat enough today. It means you deprived yourself today. And why did you do that? Because you weren't sure there would be enough tomorrow. So I'll eat half of this now. And yes, I'll be hungry at the end of the day, but I'm always hungry at the end of the day, so that's no problem. And then if there's no manna out on the ground tomorrow, I'll have half of what I didn't eat today and I can eat it tomorrow. And that would be a very easy set of decisions to make. For people who'd lived in slavery their whole life. Especially if you're a family, you got kids or older parents who aren't capable of doing as much and so on. Like you could justify this in so many ways. It's such it's it's like a, a flick, a switch is flicked. Christina gave me this analogy. It's like she talked about somebody who'd come through the Great Depression. And and a lot of people who came through the Great Depression just can't they couldn't throw anything out. You just saved everything. Because you never knew if it was going to be there tomorrow, or if you were going to need it, or what life was going to be like when everything fell apart again. That's the mindset of the people of Israel. They're depriving themselves today because they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And God is teaching them they don't have to live like that anymore. And he does it both by providing enough for today and by taking away what they hoard Right, They save, they try to save some for tomorrow, and it rots, and it gets worms, and it stinks. That's what we're told happens to that manna. It's pretty drastic, right? Oh, well, so much for, I can't save it for tomorrow. Right? I don't have a choice. I'm going to have to eat today what I need today and trust that God will give me what I need tomorrow. Then comes the sixth day, and God, God has told Moses what is going on, but Moses hasn't told the people what's going on, and so they gather up their manna, and and we're not supposed to see a picture of them working twice as hard and getting twice as much stuff. We already know God has disconnected those two things. It's why you have this kind of little bit of a surprise where they're like, uh, we have twice as much. Like, how did this happen? Nobody worked harder than they have the rest of the week. Why would we? No matter how hard we work, we get enough. But now we have twice as much as normal, so what do we do? And they report it to their leaders, and their leaders report it to Moses. And Moses says it's because tomorrow is the Sabbath. Tomorrow is the Lord's Sabbath. Tomorrow is a holy day of rest. Now, again, think about that for the nation of Israel they're slaves. Do you know how many times they've had a day of rest? Never. We live in a day and an age where we all get a weekend. And that's a result of the combination of the Jewish Sabbath and the Christian Sabbath, the Saturday and Sunday. We inherited that from the scriptures. Prior to that, days off, they're unheard of for all except the highest and richest, richest classes in society. And God gives a Sabbath and He specifies that everybody, from the highest to the lowest in Israelite society. Will take the Sabbath as a day of rest, down to your servant and your maidservant and even your animals. All will take a day of rest on the seventh day. Again, an incredible gift to a people who have never experienced anything like this, who have never been able to. And of course, some of them go out and work. They probably don't know what a day of rest means. It's that same slavery, scarcity mindset. If I don't work today, what will happen tomorrow? If I take a rest now, there won't be enough. I won't be okay. I won't be able to provide for my family, etc., 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 right? Um, and once again, God is teaching them this lesson, and he's making them. They get up on the seventh day, and the ones who go out to gather manna, there isn't any. They don't have a choice. These are lessons that God wants them to learn, but he knows that in order for them to learn it, they're going to have to live in it for a long period of time. Because that's the only way to get out of that, to get that slavery and scarcity mindset out of us. So God takes the very food they need each day, and he uses it to teach them these incredibly important lessons. It's out of this story, incidentally, we get the phrase that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because while the people of Israel desperately needed food in the wilderness, they also desperately needed to learn who God is and what it meant to live as the free children of God, trusting in him, obeying him, and resting in him, which are all connected because you can't rest in a God you don't trust. And the good commands of God include the command to rest, and therefore you can't rest without obedience either. It's pretty cool. It doesn't stop there, though. They head out into the wilderness, and once again, they're out of water. And this time, they're grumbling Rises to new heights. We're told that they quarreled and they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now I read that and I think, How can they even ask? The sea was parted, the water was purified, they're eating bread from heaven every morning. Like maybe you can explain away the quail. Like there's just a lot of quail that live in this wilderness and they like us. But But how do you explain away the rest of this? Like, how do you, like we ate manna this morning and now we're out of water. Is God really with us or not? Um, It's easy to wonder, but I think when I'm more charitable, I recognize that I do stuff like that, (laughs) amen, (laughs) where I've seen God's goodness and I've seen his grace and I've seen his provision and then something goes wrong. It's like, God, where are you? Uh, well, the same place I've been all along, I'm with you. <laughs> but, again, God is very gracious. He doesn't take this as, as a time to be like, look, I, I tried to show you guys, okay? I'm done. <laughs> enough is enough. If, if the manna and the quail and the ocean and the, the, parting of the, wa- of, or the purifying of the waters, if that's not enough for you, then I'm done. It really does take a long time to unlearn the lessons of a lifetime. And most of the Israelites, other than those who are very young, have had a lifetime to learn the lessons of Egypt, to learn the lessons of distrust, because you can't trust Pharaoh and you can't trust his gods, to learn the lesson of scarcity, living a life where there's never enough, to learn the lesson that you're valued just for your work, right? Because that's the only thing Pharaoh wants from you. And if you don't have that, you're nothing. And God wants to teach him these other lessons, that he is trustworthy and that he is good and he will provide, that they can rest, that he will give them enough, and that he does love them and value them, not because of their work or anything they do, but because he is their God and they are his people. That's it, end of the story. And so here in Rephidim, they quarrel and they complain bitterly about having no water to drink and god's response is incredible god says to moses go ahead of the people take some of the elders take the staff with which you struck the nile and i will stand there before you by the rock at horeb or on the rock strike the rock and water will come out for the people to drink now, this is a cool miracle in the sense of it's, you can imagine Moses and the elders and he hits the rock and water starts pouring out, but there's a lot more going on here than just that. This is the picture of a trial where someone on trial stands before the people and is questioned and struck to see what comes out, to bring out the truth. Now, we don't do trials like this. It's a culturally specific set of images. Um, We would never hit someone to see like, you know, tell the truth. Whack! Right? Like, we don't don't do that. Um, But they did. And so, God is standing on this rock and he's saying, hit me and see what comes out. And Moses strikes the rock and what comes out? Living waters. Flowing. Abundantly. Enough for a multitude, the hundreds of thousands of Israelites that are traveling through the desert get water from this rock because God is the source of all life and all blessing in abundance. Part of, the, part of the story that isn't in Exodus but later tradition is that this rock came with them for the rest of their journey and that that was how they had water. And that rock, Paul tells us, was Christ, it was Jesus providing the living water for them all the way through. It's this moment where God is saying, I really want you to know who I am and that I'm with you and what that means. And it seems that at this point, the Israelites begin to understand. Because as we keep going in the story, the Amalekites attack. When the Israelites turned around and saw Pharaoh bearing down on them in his chariots. They panic. They're afraid. They all assume they're going to die. Right? We read that passage. Now, here they are in the wilderness, and the Amalekites are your kind of desert pirates as a nation. They're, they're wilderness raiders. This is what they do. Okay? This is, this is their thing. They're good at it. And they're bearing down on Israel in the wilderness, and there's no panic. Moses says the Lord says to Moses go to Joshua choose some of the men go out and fight and they do it they obey they listen and Moses heads up on top of the hill to watch with uh, Aaron and her a new character we haven't met before and uh, as long as he holds up his staff the Israelites are winning but when he gets too tired and the staff comes down, they're losing. So Aaron and Hur get him a rock to sit on, and they each take an arm and hold it up for him so that he can hold up his staff the whole day until they win the fight. And they're victorious. They win. The people of Israel have learned that God can be trusted, that if they obey him, things will go well. And the lesson continues. In in Exodus chapter 18, we find the people encamped around Mount Sinai, Um, they haven't yet approached and received the covenant and all that. We'll look at that next week. And they're no longer complaining bitterly about all their issues. They're bringing them to Moses. And they're asking him, what does the Lord say? How do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? So many of them are bringing their issues to Moses that he can't actually handle it. All he does all day from sunrise to sunset is judge and deal with issues, and then he doesn't even finish them all. And so then the next day he has to continue, and it's his father-in-law who comes along, and together they worship the Lord, and, and Jethro is this great figure of someone who knows that Yahweh is, is God. And Jethro says, you can't do this. You're going to wear yourself out, and then the people are going to be without a leader, and that's no good. So pick wise men of upstanding character who are faithful and who are impartial, and set them over groups of 50 and 100 to judge on all of the small things. And then if something is too much for them, they can bring that to you, but the rest they can deal with. We don't know a lot about Jethro, but he's clearly a wise man. Um, and Moses, Moses listens, and this begins to set up some structure for the people of Israel. But I think it's really important to recognize that shift from bitter complaining and everything going wrong, we're going to die, and what did you bring us here for? To come and tell us what the Lord says. And what's changed over that time is that they spent weeks with God, learning his lessons, learning who he is and who they are called to be in his presence and being transformed by it. It's amazing how much of this narrative then gets picked up in the New Testament. The crossing of the Red Sea becomes an image of baptism. That in Jesus, we are brought through the sea, just as the people of Israel were. And we are given a new identity through the waters, just as the people of Israel were. The New Testament authors recognize that on the other side of that sea, God begins to show them who they're supposed to be. And he does the same thing with us. God fights our battles for us, just as God fought the battle for them. And Paul picks this up in Ephesians where he talks about the armor of God. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can what? So that you can stand firm while the Lord fights, right? You just need to be still. Watch and see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you. The manna from heaven, Jesus is the bread of life. And he, he, he repeats that sign, multiplying the loaves and the fishes in the wilderness of Israel to feed 5,000. And he repeats the same words, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The rock, as I already said, is Jesus, is Jesus with the people in Israel, as he is with us today. And God is the same God today that he was then. God doesn't change. And so for us, we can and do need to learn those same lessons. The lesson of trust, the lesson of obedience, the lesson of rest, the lesson of value, that we can trust God, that he is good, that if we will obey his words, things will go well. Now, let me clarify. They still fight the Amalekites. They still have to travel through the wilderness. Going well doesn't mean everything is always easy. It doesn't mean everything is the way you want it to be. It means it's good. That's what comes from obedience to God. The lesson of rest, that we can rest in God because he's got this. If it's all up to me, there's no room for rest, and I'm still going to fail. And work 24-7, and it's all going to fall apart if it's on my shoulders. But because it's on God's shoulders, we can rest. And the lesson of value, that each of us is valued by God, not because of what we can produce, not because we've earned it, not because we work hard enough or get enough things right or except fill in all those different blanks that the internal narrative does in your head. That he loves us because we're his children, because he's our God and we're his people, and that's it. Everything else after that comes into different categories. And what brings the people of Israel to learn those lessons is the same thing that can bring us to learn those lessons. Spend time with God, the great wilderness guide. He's the one who transforms. He's the one who takes these things from your head, because all I can do is put them in your head. He's the one who takes them from there to here, down into your heart. One step at a time. One miracle at a time. One sign at a time. Where he shows you that he is good and trustworthy and faithful. One of the things the Israelites get right as you get into Exodus chapter 18 is they stop their bitter complaints, and they turn those into requests. They turn those into asks, because part of the lesson that God wants them to see is that it, He's their God. They can ask. They can come to Him. They can bring their stuff. They can say, God, what about this, and what about this, and I don't know what to do here, and I need this, and help me, um, and we can still do this today. <laughs> So I want to encourage two responses. On the one hand, spend time with God. That can be in the Word, that can be in prayer, that can be in worship, that can be in community. Regularly spend that time with God because that is what will transform you. That's for the days and weeks and months to come. Today, I want to say, come and ask. So I want to call our prayer, the people who are going to be praying praying at the front to come up right now. Um, so if you're one of those pairs, there's going to be three pairs of people up here. Um, Christine and I are one of those pairs, so you're only going to see two of them for a minute. And um, we're going to be starting to do this more regularly in our services, where we have ministry time after the service, where people are available to pray with you as you have need. Now, none of us standing up here are Moses. Moses. <laughs> We are here to pray with you and bring with you your requests and your prayers to the Lord because it's him you need to hear from. He's the one who we call upon and he's the one who answers. So if you're in a position today where you're thinking, I want to trust God, but I don't know that he's good, that's okay. God took the time to show the Israelites these things. He didn't expect them to just get it to just know, just figure it out on their own. He showed them again and again and again. I want to obey the Lord, but I haven't been able to. I don't know what he's asking. Come, receive prayer. I'm in a place of need. I'm facing a sea I can't cross. Waters I can't purify. um, Provisions I can't find. A battle I can't win. Come and ask. The Lord is the one who can help you in the midst of all of those things. So I'm going to pray before I, the worship team's going to come up and they're going to lead us in worship while we're available to pray with you and um, and then, yeah, come and receive prayer, worship the Lord as where you are and uh, and He's good. and let's pray that we see that. So let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for this journey that you walked with Israel. I thank you for your grace and your goodness. I thank you that you were not content to just rescue these people, but you wanted to transform them. And I know that the same is true for us, that you died for us on the cross, that we could be rescued and brought through death in the waters of your baptism, Lord God, but that you don't want the journey to end there because you want us to become like you and to know you, to know your heart and your mind and live in light of your love. And so I pray that you would walk that journey with each of us from where we are now, into the promised land, into the kingdom of heaven, into the fullness of revelation of yourself, Lord God. Teach us to trust and to obey and to rest and show us your love so that we know how much and how deeply you love and value us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.